Our friends at the New Republic have a podcast, The Politics of Everything, hosted by TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and contributing writer Alex Perrine. The show explores the issues people are talking about and the political currents beneath their surface. On past episodes, Alex, Laura, and their guests discussed what, if anything, is considered disqualifying for political office today. Whether the modern-day authoritarian curious GOP meets the criteria of a fascist party. And if the hype and doomsaying around programs like ChatGPT is masking its real limitations and dangers. You can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. I suppose I could begin by harping on Harper's Magazine's long-standing commitment to publishing fine prose and original thought. Because it's true. Rather than stripping away a writer's style, the magazine has endeavored to preserve authors' voices as well as their rights, financial and otherwise. As the publishing industry has been hollowed out by Silicon Valley and then hollowed out some more, that approach has become rarer and rarer. Over the past decade, tech companies such as Netflix, Amazon, and Apple have overtaken traditional studios as the major power players in Hollywood in their ideas about lowering overhead, specifically screwing over streaming and TV writers, are parallel to what happened to journalism in the aughts. To draw out the similarities and differences of these changes, which goes some way to explain why the Writers Guild of America is on strike, I was joined by Tom Bissell, a member of the WGA and sometimes magazine writer. He wrote a long, very interesting essay about stoicism for the May issue. As Bissell reveals, there's more at stake in the WGA's strike than whether or not some gluten-free limousine liberal can buy a mansion after working on a hit TV show. So first off, what is at stake in this strike, besides no more new episodes of Wednesday or Family Guy or whatever egghead show you <laughs> like to watch? I think what is at stake is bringing back the idea of television writing, especially as mm -hmm. a viable long-term career where one can develop, climb up the step to a producing writer, uh, you know, getting experience on set learning just how to run your own show and, you know, the advancement that that suggests uh, down the line for you as a, as a creative person. Uh, the rise of streaming has really kind of just nuked that whole model. Uh, the rise of streaming has been great for show creators. Uh, it's been less good for just workaday uh, staff writer type people. It's annihilated the career path of people who want to go from just being someone who staffs on a bunch of shows to someone who can have like a, a steady, well-paying career. The, the part of all this that I understand people's skepticism is <laughs> the average person makes quite a bit less than the average Hollywood screenwriter, right? But when you look at the way many rooms function, when you look at the way uh, our basic minimum agreements haven't really risen with the cost of inflation, certainly the cost of living in a city like Los Angeles. You're really looking at someone who is a steadily working television writer uh, making 
what would be no one's idea of like a really great salary. And so I think people just want to bring back the stability to television writing. So, you know, reading over, sort of looking into this issue, I was struck by the WGA's statement, which included the following line. The company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce, and their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing, end quote. And so reading this gig economy devaluing the uh, profession of writing, this sounds like a lot like uh, journalism, which you also have some experience with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't want to, there's sort of yeah. an argument about streaming numbers and advertising. And of course, if Netflix ever revealed how many people are actually watching its streaming shows, they would never be able to charge what, you know, terrestrial TV or cable TV charges, right? So, what would you say are the similarities and differences between, you know, writing for magazines or writing for television? And do you feel like the changes that the WGA are fighting against would make writing for TV more like journalism? That's a multi-part question. Um, well, let's start with the most, uh, uh, let's start with an aside from me. Uh, I got into magazine writing you know, about five or six years before the bottom dropped out of the magazine industry. <laughs> so nice. I got to, I got to ride the, the tail end of, uh, you know, of, of a wave that, you know, spent a couple of decades getting bigger and bigger. And then it just kind of sussed out. And I became, I became a member of the WJ when in 2016. So, you know, I had, a, I had another seven year period. Uh, you and your right dumb as, luck. <laughs> <laughs> right as the wheels came off the car. So whenever uh, I apparently get interested in a, an emerging or a, 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 not an emerging industry, whenever I get interested in a seemingly stable writing industry is when uh, apparently the lights are all about to go up. So the thing that I find very similar is there was a boom in magazine advertising in the early 80s. And, you know, I was the first magazine piece I ever wrote, I was paid $3 a word for, which you could never get today. This was in 2000, 2000. <sighs> um, so there comes this explosion of investment and money. And suddenly, instead of five or six magazines paying well, there's 10 of them that are paying pretty well. And this creates this internal churn for a while of everybody's happy and everyone's making uh, a good living. And then suddenly someone realizes, oh God, this isn't viable anymore. Uh, there are too many magazines. There are too many writers. <laughs> and rather than readjust their business practices that got them into this mess in the first place, the magazine owners turn around and they blame staff and uh, what we now call content providers <sighs> for being too expensive. Mm -hmm. And they offload their poor business decisions onto the people that allow them to have the business in the first place. That is, I think, very analogous to what sort of happened with this streaming explosion. And uh, they really did just close off a whole bunch of revenue avenues that writers had depending on for literally decades, uh, residuals especially. Uh, stable work, you know, over a 23 episode long season with weekly payments, then you get paid for your scripts that you turn in at the same time, you could make a very good living. But then with the rise of streaming, all residuals mostly went away. Uh, the kind of 
half the year working on a show, that all went away. The rise of the mini room means that you work for a few weeks in a writer's room, you go off and write your episodes, and then you'll never have any contact with the show again. You're not wanted on set. Your further input isn't needed. So, And it should be noted that writing occurs after production has wrapped like there's ADR there's additional dialogue recording there's tons all sorts of, of stuff. stuff yes tons of stuff so and again the streamers are coming to the people who are uh you know spearheading the majority of of their projects at scripted television and we're saying hey this system kind of sucks and they're turning around and saying well this is a really bad time for us you know <laughs> so uh they're kind of turning our pro- their problem into our problem. And th- that's where I think the two comparisons are, are, are pretty apt. The, 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 the day-to-day realities of being a TV writer and being a, a journalist are, are radically different. Um, you know, journalism, it's you, it's your editor, maybe a, another editor, and it's your sources, and it's the thing you're writing. It's, in a very, it's a very private, almost monastic kind of exchange, and then eventually the thing is in the magazine. Uh, TV writing is more of a... I don't know, country club where you go in with a bunch <laughs> of other people and you chat and you're served nice food <laughs> and, and it's very communal and it's, and it's, you know, really a team effort. So I, the, the day and, you know, one of them pays quite a bit better than the other, uh, especially nowadays. One of the fables told about the last WGA strike in 2008 was that, Oh, that led to the boom of reality television. And the big shows, like the big reality shows that supposedly replaced all of this scripted TV, those they were already yeah, on the air. They're already <laughs> on the air. Um, but what has changed, and you can really feel this, is that there is a shift in the power in Hollywood, right? So it went away from traditional studios to kind of idiot. Uh, Silicon Valley disruptors like Netflix, Apple, Hulu. So to what extent, I mean, you mentioned the streaming issue, but to what extent is this a difference of ethos, right? Because Hollywood is a union town and Silicon Valley is the anti-union town, to say the least. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, it's the same thing that happened in publishing. So I was in book publishing in the late 90s through, you know, into the early, very early 80s. And there you had Amazon come in and just lay waste to what had been a stable, viable business model for decades, Mm -hmm. for close to a century, Mm -hmm. right? And then tech companies come in with their penchant for disruption and their their vainglorious confidence in, in themselves. They destroy venerable business models just with by flooding the zone with their own stuff backed by endless capital. And then what happens? 10 years go by, the smoke clears, and these tech companies look around, they're bleeding money, and they go, oh, oh, (laughs) we need to bring back the thing we destroyed because what we're doing isn't working. That is, I think, exactly analogous to uh, Netflix and Apple coming into Again, a system that had been honed, lots of trial and error, decades, the entertainment industry, they kind of flattened it out and just destroyed it. And now they're looking around and going, oh, um, maybe this business model we've upended uh, had a lot more going for it than we thought. And so they're going to bring back 
cable television at this rate. You know, we're going to, yeah. someone's going to come and we're going to bundle all the streaming services together and it'll be one payment that you pay. And then they'll put commercials on it. Yep. And then someone will look around and go, congratulations, you just reinvented the thing <laughs> you spent the last decade destroying. Yes. And that, that's where I think the frustration comes from is that, you know, there was plenty of things wrong. There were and are plenty of things wrong with how Hollywood does business. But the fundamentals of picking and choosing a show and giving it a chance or maybe not giving a chance, uh, you know, all of that stuff is now wrapped around in these inhuman algorithms and just the endless sea of content that these companies can now use to hold off a thing like a strike, which is the thing that really scares me, that Netflix can just keep putting shows on their homepage for as long as you log in and audiences are never going to run out of new things to new things to them, I should say, to watch. So we have to somehow outlast their, um, you know, in practical terms, infinite amount of content that they can throw up against us. So that's the challenge. But I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in this because I know other people who do this, but Typically what happens is because as you said there's there's a ton of streaming services and you have to pay for each one of them. So what you do is you sign up for Showtime on Prime and you get 7 free days, you get 30 free days and then you cancel it before that time ends, right? Because there there there's this myth of availability when in reality people really just kind of want one thing and they go to the source for that and when they're done with it they they get rid of it because it's not yep. financially feasible and again this is the you know the silicon valley might have disrupted itself in this regard <laughs> where it's just like oh wait, we, we, we made ourselves irrelevant this time but <laughs> yeah uh i'm not i i have nothing to say to that except exactly yes uh and and i i think you know i've been picketing at netflix mostly and and that has tended to be the picket line that I've been to so far where the anger is the most palpable, <laughs> you know, where, where people are really pissed. Whereas at Paramount, it was a bit more of a party vibe, you know, yeah. people were there and they were protesting, but you didn't really feel like people's hackles getting genuinely raised. Whereas Netflix and to some extent Apple, I think people really do view those companies, rightly or wrongly, I don't have a huge, uh, I'm not, I have not been convinced one way or the other, the degree to which this is true. Uh, I have my suspicions, but people really do blame the influx of, uh, of Apple and the Netflix into this situation as having completely annihilated what was before right. safe and stable. Part of the problem is is that the industry likes to pretend that every new technology is fundamentally different from the way things were before and then use that as an excuse to underpay creatives, right? So yes. while, you know, so let's say you have, now we have 50 years of clips from The Tonight Show on YouTube that you can, or all of Saturday Night Live, like you could just pull it up whenever you want. That's fundamentally different than cable where you had to like wait for Comedy Central to like show this stuff. The experience is different and it also means a difference for how people 
should or could be paid. So what would an equitable way for writers and actors and producers and everyone else, you know, below the line to be paid residuals for their work? Because it seems like the cost is being passed down to the consumer, but not anyone else. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, oh God, there's so many. This is a maze of a question and I, I'm very eager to walk through it with you. In the olden days, residuals were always kind of based on an approximation, right? Mm. Uh, they used Nielsen ratings, they used advertising rates, but th the way residuals were paid was always a bit more voodoo than science. <laughs> I find it so fascinating <laughs> that now that the companies who are putting out shows and films, they can tell you down to the eyeball, how many people have watched show X or show Y, they know whether or not they, quote, retained them uh, to watch another show after that. Mm -hmm. They know the completion rates. They, they probably have some metrics to determine, like, even how close attention you paid, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, you know during, uh, during the viewing of the show. And now that we have an almost scientific precision to determine like how many people are watching, residuals are, move, are more voodoo-based than ever. I find that really interesting, but I also f find that it's probably concealing something that these, that these networks and streamers don't want us to know, uh, which is either how many people are watching or how few people are watching. I suspect it's a mixture of, of both. Mm. So, uh, I think current residuals rates are based on the subscriber base to the streamer. So the more subscribers they have, uh, the, the, the larger the residual becomes, but I have friends that have worked on huge shows, like massive shows, shows that, you know, people tweet about endlessly and talk about the moment that they air. And many of these friends have talked about getting, uh, residuals that are in the hundreds of dollars a couple times a year. <laughs> and that doesn't seem rational <laughs> or fair. Uh, and I think a lot of this comes down to, oh boy, now I might get some of this wrong because I'm, I'm not a labor history expert, but a lot of the way the pie is cut now, I think came down to something in the last strike yes. where it, it came down to what was called new media. And unfortunately, every show that is streaming, and again, I may be wrong on this, is technically categorized as new media. And so you're getting a tiny fraction of what, you know, if, if you buy it online, say, if you buy it from, well, in the old days, you would, you remember when you could buy shows from, from iTunes? Oh, that, yeah. was, that, that was a whole thing. Uh, I think at one point, uh, writers were getting like 0 0.006 cents per per download of those. And for a show like The Office, say, which didn't get that many viewers when it aired, but did killer business on downloads and watching when people were watching it online, uh, they were watching episodes that the, that the network said were for promotional purposes, mm. <laughs> even though they had commercials in it. Um, and I think what we came to uh, at the end of the last strike was uh, the, the new media pie got cut a little differently, a little bit more equitably. 
and that uh, promotional uh, showings of television shows uh, were allowed, but for a brief period after they aired. And then after that, the, especially if they had advertising on them, the networks had to, had to uh, again, get out the knife and cut the pie again. But I mean, we're not the only, I, I think the thing that scares them, the studios, and, and I, I am more sympathetic to the studios than most writers, and I'm not at all sympathetic to the studios. <laughs> so so I, I think the thing that worries them is, you know, we're not the only people who want the cut of the pie. The actors are going to want probably arguably a bigger cut. The directors are going to want a very large cut. And then you have the IOTSI cut, which I think in terms of total cut, they get the most because, you know, they have the most number of guilds and people beneath them uh, for all these like, you know, Teamsters and, and, and people's pensions and stuff. That all gets covered by this rather massive IATSE cut, which is spread amongst a lot more people, uh, to be fair. So I think the thing that they're terrified about is that if we say get double of what's not a lot of money, well, then maybe the directors get double and then the actors maybe get triple and then IATSE gets probably less than everyone, but then, you know, collectively more than everyone. So you're suddenly looking at studios, you know, paying out seven or 8% of a pie. Suddenly they're looking at the possibility of paying out 20% of a pie. And I think that's the thing that they are, they will fight to the death to prevent from happening. Content occupies a weird place in our lives you know this this really onerous word that's becoming increasingly used uh when martin scorsese wrote about uh federico fellini for harper's he sort of went uh he, he noted that content, you know, has become a business term for all moving <laughs> images, a David Lee yes. movie, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, <laughs> a superhero sequel, a series episode. And, you know, that these the what unites them is that they're they're all linked by the fact that you watch on a screen. Right. And so the content also includes things like what you read, Twitter, like all this stuff. And we're kind of hitting this place with. Twitter, the algorithm has been completely redone. Uh, the worst posts are showing up first, or not not great posts are showing up. We're in this weird flux where we might we might be reaching the end of peak content, where people don't just want like a fire hose of stuff shot at them, and they might actually want something more curated or um, sane <laughs> to 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 look at and spend their time on because it is exhausting i mean do you feel like that is true either in media or in uh journalism that we might be reaching the, the logical end like magazines did i do and uh my friend ian bogos wrote a wonder and i hate to bring up the the atlantic and a harper's interview oh. but he wrote a wonderful <laughs> just okay ian bogos my friend ian bogos wrote for a, a magazine we will not disclose he wrote he wrote a really wonderful piece a few months ago, basically, whose basic argument was the the world that we now know, Facebook, Twitter, like we really have to think about what exists around us right now, long term. It is effectively a shopping mall in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And 20 years from now, there's a very good chance that none of it will be standing anymore. Something new will have replaced it, a whole new way to... <laughs> quote, engage with content uh, might be coming 
Uh, I have a very strong inkling having a young kid and knowing a lot of young kids, you know, not super young, but young enough to sort of have a have a brain and start thinking about things. None of these kids are interested in social media. Yeah. None of them. Yeah. Uh, so I think the business model is a is a is about to uh, demographically drop out. Uh, from out from beneath a lot of these companies, is this going to lead to a revival of a, a more curated form of content delivery? Are people going to devolve back to more traditional forms of media delivery? I don't know. But I do know is that every one of these strikes has been founded on a mutual recognition between working stiff writers and studio. Uh, uh, stakeholders looking ahead and seeing something glimmering in the desert ahead. You don't know if it's a mirage. It could be an oasis. It could be an approaching camel with a bandit with a rifle on top of it. But everyone looks out and sees this shimmering thing and thinks, oh, that might be a problem or that might be our salvation. And so every single strike has been founded on the recognition that there is something out there. No one quite knows what it is. No one quite knows what it's going to become. But it's all about staking out a position that all sides are going to have to live with for the next decade. And I think that's what we're doing right now. We all see the shape of something. We're not certain what it is. We view it as a threat. We writers view it as a threat. I think they view it as salvation. And uh, we are trying to, to, to just come up with something that doesn't leave us crushed uh, with, you know, all the other people that actually make these shows possible for them. Yeah, because I, I mean, I almost <laughs> because the, the question of AI has come up so much and mm -hmm. that is such a red herring. <laughs> To me, I agree. I agree. Uh, I agree. And not just because, not just because the technology simply isn't there, and that it'll probably never get there, really. But by virtue of the fact that if everything is flooded with AI-generated text, you know, dramas, what have you, the value of the human will increase. Like, what is it will become rare and therefore valuable, more valuable than it has ever been. Yeah, there are, you know, if I were a copy editor, uh, if I were a legal writer, uh, the rise of AI would terrify me. Uh, the kind of writing I do, I don't view it as an existential threat <laughs> at the moment. However, one thing a studio could do with AI, with the existing AI tech right now, and I think this is why they, they refuse to negotiate on it, and I don't think anyone on the WGA side was even really worried about AI at all until they just refused to negotiate. That was like, that was the first inkling, like, oh, shit, they're planning something. Here's what you could do right now with, with uh, existing AI. You could say your studio, you buy a best-selling novel, you run it through uh, a slightly modified version of ChatGPT to spit out a crappy first draft uh, of a script, yeah. uh, adapting it. And then here's the magic part. You hire a proper screenwriter to fix it yeah. and you pay them at the revision rate rather than the, the rate you would pay someone to develop something right. uh, an adaptation from scratch. So that is something they could absolutely do. That is something that I bet there, some people have maybe even taken a few stabs at this. I've heard rumors that, uh, studios are, are looking very carefully at ways that they can uh, uh, use AI not to replace writers, but to pay them less 
than they would otherwise be forced to pay them. Right. Because the, you know, several years ago when the allegations against Kevin Spacey came out, there was a big deal that he was replaced in a film by Christopher Plummer. So instead of getting a young guy in old makeup, they got an old, actual old guy and they replaced him. And it was like right before the film was released. And that signaled to me, at least, that they had done this before. Like if you could turn it around that quickly, there's no way they hadn't replaced somebody. But, the, but by making it such a public event, it was saying to actors, you know, you're replaceable. First of all, there's a million people who look like you and want this job, but you are so <laughs> more replaceable than you thought before. Yeah. Yes. Uh, aren't we all replaceable? Um, <laughs> it's true. I wake, I wake up every morning haunted by my replaceability, um, which is all the more reason, you know, for why you are able to have a career doing something as, you know, interesting and relatively remunerative as television writing, you just want some basic protections and some basic expectations of stability. None of us have stability now. I mean, th this is causing so much unease amongst, you know, friends of mine. Like, and I'm, I'm right in the same boat with them. I mean, we are all wondering what the hell is going to happen come September and there's no deal. And, uh, you know, family vacations are being canceled. Uh, belts are being tightened. It's, it's really an uneasy time to be uh, a person in this business at the moment. And uh, the, thing that, the thing that bugs me is that over and over through the history of Hollywood, the story is exactly the same. I mean, it is a union town for a reason because the people... And, I, and again, I'm more sympathetic to the studios than, 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 than most writers. I'm just going to say that again. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to say again, I'm not at all sympathetic to them. But the, the history of Hollywood is the story of the financiers figuring out ways to pay as little feasibly possible as they can to, to the, the prof creative professionals that make their movies. I understand they put up the capital. I understand all of that arguments. But the fact is, they have nothing without the craftsmen. They have nothing. And... I don't think the WGA's demands are really that outrageous. I mean, when you look at them, there's some big asks in there, but I think we're on our side are all willing to take less than what we're asking for right now, but we just want to be in a position to be able to negotiate, right? I don't think the negotiations that went on three weeks, the, the, the month before the strike, I don't think any of them were in good faith. I think most of the studios were thrilled for this strike to happen. I think they're still delighted it's going on. I have the sneaking suspicion most of them know the exact date when they're going to come back to the table, cram some, try to cram some deal down our throats that isn't great, but is better than shitty. <laughs> And then it'll just be a contest of seeing who blinks. But but it's very hard to escape my feeling, you know, going to the picket lines, just seeing these grand old Hollywood buildings or grand new Hollywood buildings in Netflix Netflix's case. Just the sense of seeming calm there. <laughs> you know, these edit these grand personal personalityless edifices just staring back at you and everything's going on inside. It all seems all going according to plan. And I don't say this to be conspiratorial. I just say this, that we're really up against very powerful forces here. And, Absolutely. And 
they are going to try to starve us out. Yeah, because there is, as you said uh, correctly, they have all the capital to make this happen or not happen. And there's also this idea that writing, but especially fiction writing, isn't real work. You know, you're just making stuff up, right? Like, (laughs) how hard could that be? Uh, And it seems, you know, it's a a suspicious uh, profession to be involved in. To what degree are executives or these companies or anyone kind of weaponizing that idea because i think again when people every <laughs> when i was doing research for this it was every story was like what is the wga strike and which shows are not coming back maybe right <laughs> right yeah um i'll be very honest and tell you that my dealings with executives on let's let me let me back up i've sold something like seven shows. One got to air, uh, one pilot was shot, uh, a couple are sort of in stasis now and the rest all sort of just died. Mm -hmm. So that's like seven different networks and well, like five networks and uh, you know, a lot of different executives. Um, I have never felt uh, abused or taken for granted or, or, or even like, um, I have never felt from the executive class, the development executive class, any kind of game playing or hostility. Most of them are pretty thoughtful, decent people. And, and I've certainly got some notes I don't agree with, but, but I, I still have yet to come into contact with like the, you know, the stereotypical development exec moron <laughs> who's like just giving you patently awful advice. I've been, pretty impressed with the caliber of people that I've worked with. However, once things start getting to business affairs, you kind of see the whole edifice crack apart Mm. and you see the, the nickel and diming that goes on in the deal-making part of the procedure. You're really made to feel like, well, (laughs) <laughs> you know, you should be lucky that we're just uh, investing in this person and in this person's vision. And, you know, gosh, it'd be a shame if we had to, you know, uh, just for this all to fall apart now. So I really do have, have seen the gamesmanship from the disposability of the Hollywood writer, uh, definitely during the, the, the deal making part of the process. I very, very rarely experienced during the actual creative development part of the process. There's a famous quote, I can't remember who said it, but he said, in Hollywood, writers are merely first drafts of human beings. <laughs> um, and I've never really felt that hostility from, from network people, which isn't to say I haven't had my throat slashed on a couple projects, but it was done very nicely. <laughs> you know, just people, were very, people were very pleasant about sure. it, but uh, yeah. Well, you know, you've said multiple times that, you know, you are not necessarily pro the studios, but you're more understanding of the studios than your compatriots. And I think a potential response to the WGA strike is that, well, the changes that they're proposing, getting rid of writers' rooms, is that they're getting rid of kind of like the excess, right? And and they're really letting the people like Mike White, who created the White Lotus, or, or um, Ryan Murphy, you know, uh, 
who, by the way, uh, is actually running production right now. Um, if, the, if, the, if, you know, you're preventing these superstars, these kind of genius showrunners from really spreading their wings and flying because you have all this bulk, like you have this room full of people who are just kind of hanging around eating food, doing nothing. And I mean, Hollywood loves that sort of self-mythologizing, the genius of the system, right? So... What would you say, how would you respond to that criticism that it's the, that these changes are actually quite sensible and they will reward the truly talented and kick out the uh, hangers on? One of the shows I worked on was Andor with Tony Gilroy, uh, who is, in my view, a creative genius of the highest order, you know, arguably one of the two or three greatest living screenwriters. Tony is the definition of the visionary auteur, right? I think if you took away <laughs> all the people that help him get to where he needs to get, I think he would be the first person to say, well, that's fucking crazy because, <laughs> you know, you can't be uh, the visionary without a bunch of people making your vision function. Yeah. I, rege I reject auteurism in every discipline and, I, and I've worked in a lot of collaborative, you know, art forms, even a, a novel that you write by yourself there's a whole chorus of people that are helping you make it better, yeah. right? So even in the most solitary form of creative expression, it's not a one man or one woman show at all. But I do think you're right that the current WGA terms that are being offered to the studios actually put people like Mike White a bit on their, uh, they, it back heals them a bit. This is not a deal that is going to favor you know, the big time, huge overall deal level showrunner. It's actually not great for them. But how much do you want to bet that almost all those people voted for it anyway? So what does that tell you? Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the strike, per the, the percentage of people that wanted to strike is what, 97.8%. Yes, it was a huge, um, huge number. I would think it was the highest number they'd ever recorded. Yeah. And... As someone who aspires to be a showrunner, there's some stuff in the WA, WGA proposal that, that I look at and think, hmm, not sure I like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, mandating a number of people to be on every show, like a minimum number of writers. Because uh, the, the, the writers rooms that I've been in that have been most sort of successful, the smaller number of people were there, the, the more work you got done and, and the better quality of the work. So I do feel like there is you know, probably on every show. And I know from having, you know, friends that are staffed on shows and friends who run staffs on shows that there does seem to be a small percentage of people that don't pull their weight, but I don't think you blow up the viability <laughs> of a profession based on some people that, that, you know, may just like to show up and snack rather than do the hard work of, uh, of uh, creating a show. Right. Hollywood is fundamentally Fordian. You got to have everybody <laughs> given. Uh, and, if, and even if they don't give, that's a form of giving. So <laughs> Exactly. You give by withholding. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's very, it's very yeah. cerebral. This, this Hollywood <laughs> magic. Um, but I, I mean, what... So you've you've been on on the picket lines. You've been out. So obviously in Los Angeles, feeling the vibes. Is there any particularly funny or interesting thing that's happened to you at any of these protests? Because obviously it's a bunch of creative people. It's got to be something yeah. great. Um, I think the funniest part is the degree 
to which networking is going on in the picket line when people <laughs> yes. are going around in circles. Um, seen a lot of uh, burgeoning romances form mm. in the picket line. Uh, uh, you know, you just wind up meeting people and talking and and uh, and then comparing resumes, which is always a, a, a fun thing oh, that yes. people do in, in Hollywood. Um, so the degree to which writers remain shameless <laughs> careerist writers, <laughs> even when their backs are against the wall, striking blows against capital, they're still sort of, hey, maybe that person will give me a job later. Uh, I found that to be really heartening. And once the networking on the picket line stops, I think that's when things are going to feel really dire. Because, <laughs> and I really do worry what summer is going to do to the number of people that can go out. Because the public pressure, I think, is a big component of this. Yeah. And, it does feel good when people drive by and honk and people bring donuts and people raise their fists. And it does feel pretty absurd sometimes. You know, we're hardly facing down Pinkertons and we're, right. and we're hardly like labor heroes in the sense that Arlo Guthrie would want to write a song about us. <laughs> but the principles of what we're doing go back to the core of the tradition of an active labor force, uh, you know, vying for political potency in America. I mean, you may not like the messengers, i.e. us, <laughs> but we are the closest thing we've got right now to people trying to create something that is legitimately fair and equitable while facing down opponents that have trillions of dollars in the bank, sometimes literally. Yes, because I mean, that's the, the I feel like all anti-union sentiment is rooted in a sense of, but I want that that's unfair. Why do they get that? And I don't, right. I, I, right. Want, I want to I be like the MTA guy. I just want to hang out. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. I want to hold the ladder, but this, <laughs> this, um, I think that you're right that this, this question of public sentiment is huge. And I mean, even the fact that you're not entirely happy with what the union has proposed thus far, it speaks to the, you know, the fact that there have to be some, some compromises and that part of being in a union is maybe not always liking it. And that maybe that's a lesson other people could take to heart when thinking about organizing their workplaces. When I was young and dumb and I got my first teaching job at the university level, I was told I had to join the union. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just a temperamentally I'm not a joiner. I never have been. I'm not a movement person. Like uh, 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 my own individuality and the individuality of my perceptions and stuff, which is all probably an illusion. You know, we're all just meat puppets, uh, <laughs> slaves to our <laughs> genetics. But I choose to have the romantic view that I am an individual actor with with, uh, with agency and, and a point of view. And I really cherish my individuality. I, I always have. So I remember I rankled a bit when I had to join this union. I joined it, but it pissed me off that I had to pay dues and all that because, you know, I wasn't thinking about the number of people at the university level who had suffered and who had, who had striked, struck, striked, uh, striked, who had gone out and put themselves and their professions and their reputations on the livelihood to get protections that I, as a 27-year-old shithead, or how old was I? I was a 29-year-old shithead, came along and was like, well, this isn't for me. I don't need this. You know? And I feel like a lot of anti-union sentiment comes down to that. It's, it's this loss of individuality and choice 
and, 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 and situations that can be really complicated and have to do with livelihood and money and collective action, all this stuff. So you scramble around in yourself to say, well, I'm not a movement person. I'm not a joiner. You know, I can make my own way. This experience uh, has really reminded me, A, how dumb I was as a young person to accept, uh, to grudgingly join this union that had, you know, done so much to protect me and people like me uh, to today when even though the union uh, is going to, to demand things that, that might not be my first choice, I'm going to support the union wholeheartedly and I'm not going to second guess any of it because we're all now suffering uh, for each other. You know, we really are suffering for each other and we're just suffering for the next generation of television writers to come up and not have to worry about this shit because maybe we got some basic protections in for them. And, and that is really the thing that actually makes me value collective action and makes me hugely appreciative, not just to the writers union, but every union that has any political viability with the possible exception of the police's union. Because <laughs> well, you know, that's a that's whole other thing. I mean, glad they have their union, glad it's politically effective. Wish they'd shut the fuck yeah. up about corrupt, yeah. corrupt cops. But um, uh, if that doesn't sound too goopy and sentimental, uh, that that's my, my thought mm-hmm. on how I've grown as a, as a, a collective bargaining yes. person. Well, Last question. Can you pass along my pilot to somebody? Absolutely. Yes! I will, I will get it to uh, multiple. Uh... All of the guys we know, all of the big wheelers and dealers we know by name. Yes. Yes. They will have yeah. my script. Good. Very good. Yeah. Right, well, thank um, Can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, can I look at the transcript of this to punch up any times where I'm startlingly <laughs> ineloquent? Because I feel like I was ineloquent. Um, I don't mean wholesale rewriting. Just could I could I just look this at it before a, you it goes want up? To punch up your, your your I get it. I get it. It's it's in your blood. The networking, the punching up. Yeah. These tendencies die hard. It's fine. Yes, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna thank you so much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 